Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Today's episode is brought to you by Wesper. Wesper was not involved in developing the content of this episode. Since our field is so intertwined with technology, we seem to be inundated with new sleep technologies, some of which are crossing over into the clinical realm. Here to help us understand these novel HSAT devices are Dr. Scott Riles and Dr. Stephen Holfinger. Dr. Stephen Holfinger is an assistant professor practicing sleep medicine at The Ohio State University in the Department of Pulmonary, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine. He is the Associate Program Director of OSU's Sleep Medicine Fellowship. He is a current member of the AASM's Emerging Technology Committee. Dr. Scott Riles is a sleep physician at Atrium Health in Charlotte, North Carolina. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and is also a current member of the AASM Scoring Manual Committee. He is a former member of the AASM Emerging Technology Committee. Just as a disclaimer, we will chat about the devices, signals, and algorithms, but not reimbursement, since this can vary per payer and region. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for having us. So let's talk about some of these newer devices. It seems like there is always some new metric for us to learn. So can you help me with a framework for this? Like, how should we be approaching these devices? And Scott, I'll ask you. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, you, you know, I think when it comes to these newer devices, you know, clearly there's there's a lot of different devices out there. And I think the main way to sort of start wrapping your brain around a new device is just kind of starting whether or not the device is a clinical or a consumer device. So, so you know, the, the number of both types of devices are definitely on the rise. But just kind of first looking at this category and, and seeing where it kind of falls, I think helps me at least kind of understand what it's being used for. Um, so, you know, clinical being anything uh, that's used for diagnosis or, or medical purposes, a and then consumer devices are, are sort of more in sort of the general wellness category. Um, so I think that kind of helps, at least in my mind, split them up. A and then the next is looking at what type of device is it? You know, is it, is it a wearable, which mm -hmm. is literally worn on the person? Uh, is it a nearable that's set up nearby or sort of embedded in their environment to monitor their sleep? Uh, or, or is it just an application sort of on their smartphone? And then once you know that, looking at what time, what the type of device um, uh, is supposed to be looking at um, and, and what data it collects. So, and, and how does it do this? So, you know, what measurements uh, is it taking? What are the claimed capabilities uh, that it has? And then uh, just what sensors is it using to collect that information? So how do you figure out if it's clinical or consumer? Is that sort of based on what the manufacturer says? Uh, yeah, well, I, I guess technically a, a quick way would be uh, looking at uh, if it's FDA cleared or, or approved. I, I mean, all clinical devices must have an FDA uh, cleared or approval rating. Uh, in general, the, the kind of uh, general wellness things may be FDA uh, registered, but they do not have to be. Uh, but it's mainly, you know, if, if if something is used for like diagnosis or medical purposes, then it's technically clinical. That's fair. That's fair. And so you had mentioned that you have an article coming out in Montage. So is this what you outlined? I'll go ahead and answer that. The um, 
the montage article does talk about different types of devices that are out there. Devices mostly used for diagnosis is what's going to be covered in the montage article, but it tries to break it down by whether or not it's FDA cleared, what type of sensors are used, what the intended purpose is. And um, just to piggyback on what Scott was saying, you know, when it comes to trying to decide between these consumer and clinical devices, there's usually a pretty big difference because, you know, I, I think of it like a lot of these consumer devices have the goal of, you know, fitness tracking or, you know, if they're a watch telling time, sending texts, and they have these other sensors embedded in it. And then you, you can take and try to make as many metrics as possible from it. And so oftentimes some of the sleep metrics are kind of a secondary thing that you find that these uh, devices or apps are, are tracking. Well, on the other hand, if you go from the clinical side of things, you know, they have an aim, they have something that they're trying to find, and then they tend to choose a, the sensors that are appropriate for that for that aim. That's probably actually a really good way of looking at it. Yeah, I think the only other way that we, we've kind of looked at it in the well, there's lots of ways of looking at it, but another <laughs> way that we've looked at it in the past is whether or not it's a prescription device. You know, mm -hmm. that's kind of a, a, a more simple cutoff to say whether or not this is clinical or, or consumer. So talk to me a little bit about this whole FDA process. So the approval for sensors and algorithms and devices. Uh, yeah, so uh, as far as FDA um, and the approval for these devices, um, so uh, first off, any general wellness devices, they, they don't require like a clearance or an approval. They're going to be potentially an FDA registered device or, or they may not be. Um, but in general, FDA classification is really based on the safety risk of a device or app, uh, the intended use, and then also the indications for use. Um, so when looking at safety, the device in question is sort of compared to any other prior device that, that is kind of similar. Um, and it's classified as a class one device, which means it's low risk, uh, a class two device, which means it has basically moderate or more risk than it, than the class one device. And then is it, or is it a class three device, meaning it's high risk. So, um, so for class one and two devices, uh, they, uh, you know, if, uh, if cleared by the FDA, they carry like an FDA cleared uh, label for marketing. And that's part of this 510K uh, clearance process that you might hear of. Um, and, and then when it comes to class three devices that are considered more high risk and may require some uh, like clinical trials showing their, their safety, that's when uh, devices may have what's called PMA or pre-market approval. Um, and then just kind of the final uh, kind of newest label that has come out is, is there something called the FDA granted. Um, so that's a new term that's used if a device or app uh, uses sort of a de novo pathway before it can be marketed. So if it's basically if they're looking at it and they, there's no other like class one or two device that um, is similar to that um, uh, or there's no predicate device that then it can be um, FDA granted under this de novo pathway. Well, and I think that's really important, right, with all of these new signals. Absolutely. And um, I mean, the, the the main device that I know of that uses this FDA granted is the new, there's, there's a new uh, device called Sunrise that uses these mandibular movement kind of de detection to gather metrics. You know what I, I do kind of struggle with, though, is when you have a device that has a certain component that's been FDA cleared, but the entire thing hasn't. So, for example, if the oximeter within the device is FDA cleared for oximetry, but then the entire device 
isn't FDA cleared? Like, how do you navigate that? Yeah, so I, I think that's a really good point, and it is important to keep that in mind. Um, when you're looking at these devices, if there may be a component that is cleared, but if the broader device has not been uh, you know, cleared in that specific um, makeup, uh, it's technically not cleared. Yeah, it, it can be difficult to tell. And, you know, a good example of this might be the Apple Watch, you mm-hmm. know, and, and how the Apple Watch uses the EKG or the single lead to try to determine AFib. Um, obviously, the Apple Watch tries to do a whole bunch of other things, right? It's got sleep metrics that you can get. It's got pulse ox, but none of those other um, metrics that it's reporting of FDA clearance, um, which, you know, I, I was actually just watching a YouTube video of, of um a patient trying to use the Apple Watch to say, oh, you know, I don't have sleep apnea anymore because I taped my mouth shut. And that video got thousands <laughs> oh, and thousands no. of views. Yeah. I'd, and um, just looking through the comments, you know, there's people like, wow, I can't believe that this is happening. So so it's it's important to note and you, you kind of have to go on into this with the understanding that for some of these devices, you know, when the public sees that um, a reputable company like Apple and puts on something like pulse oximetry, they're going to have a certain level of confidence in, in the results from what the device is saying. And um, so we have to be armed with the, with the information for when a patient comes in to be able to say, well, you know, that's not FDA approved and hopefully be able to explain, you know, why that's important. Well, and, and you're right, because so much of it is maybe more robust understanding of the sort of the mechanistic portions of it, right? Like not everybody with sleep apnea is hypoxic. <laughs> so it's not necessarily a great rule out, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. You know, it kind of reminds me of many, many years ago. Do you remember Andy Rooney that was on like 60 Minutes? And so he had done his segment on sleep And he was just talking about how sleep is so overrated and why do people struggle with their sleep? He can sleep anytime, anywhere. And then it goes to the sort of montage of him falling asleep on the bus and falling asleep in his office and falling asleep here and falling asleep there, right? And if you look at those comments, all these people in the comments are like, "Um, you need a sleep study. (laughs) And so, (laughs) but that wasn't his takeaway, right? His takeaway was, what is the big deal? Like, I can sleep anytime, anywhere. It was just, it was funny because there was definitely a disconnect, right, between perception and then sort of like the people who are in the field, the clinicians and and other like very well-informed patients that can sort of point out the discrepancy. Well, absolutely. And I mean, it, it gets really like, let's let's take the Apple Watch for, for more of an example. Even if it's accurate at giving you a spot check with a pulse oximetry, part of the problem problem with it is it just doesn't have the the time, right time base, you know, it doesn't right. have the resolution. It's it's not doing it every second. You have to sit there for, I don't know how long, 10 seconds or so before it gives you a single reading. So I think we all know that that's going to miss a lot of sleep apnea problems. Um, so it's being able to explain that sort of thing so that so <laughs> it, it can be difficult sometimes and maybe you don't have time during a regular clinical encounter to do it. But, you know, it's important. So then so patients, you know, stick with therapy. So if I'm trying to figure out which of these new devices I am going to feel comfortable using and deploying on patients, you know, can you help me figure out how you determine if it's a true signal versus a derived metric? Well, Seema, if, if you happen to be an AASM member, <laughs> there's this place called the hashtag sleep technology page. Um, but but really, the the committee that both of us have served on here, we spent a lot of time going through and trying to find um, 
information for each of the devices and try to be as objective as possible. Um, give you links to things like um, studies that are related to each of the devices that were reviewed. And then hopefully that will help explain what each of the sensors um, and you know what the company claims and, and what's been so far studied about it. Well, and that's kind of an important point, right? Because there, there sometimes is a difference between sort of the marketing of a device versus the scientific people behind the device and what they say it does. Yeah, and and when it comes to each of these different signals, and you know, if it's a true signal versus a drive metric, oftentimes when we're looking through these devices, we'll start. You know, first we start with the companies and their websites, and we look and see what they're reporting, and and oftentimes they give you lots of good information. You know, most of the companies do want to share all the information available about about what they've done. Um, it, it's helpful to go to the FDA's 510K if you can. Um, there's actually a, a link right on the hashtag Sleep Sleep Technology website to bring you to that website, but you can search for it there and you can usually see those documents. But if you scroll down through it, it'll actually list out all the individual sensors and it'll tell you things like the predicate devices, how, you know, how they were approved and that sort of thing. So if you really want to get into the weeds, that's what I'd recommend you do. Um, but when it comes to a lot of the signals, you kind of just have to step back and think, you know, if let's say it's giving you um, something like a derived AHI metric, you know, you kind of have to think, well, well, how is it calculating this or where did it come from or can I see? the signal myself or you know and and usually you can figure out where it's coming from just based on the technology itself and what types of sensors it's using so i need to give you guys a huge shout out because maintaining that page and updating that page is a tremendous undertaking and i and i hope people understand how much work goes into that you know out of all of the out of the committees i've ever served on um the technology committee or whatever the name it was when I was on it, because <laughs> it changes every year. Um, that was very, very labor intensive and really trying to come up with a framework for that, you know, hashtag sleep technology and then populating it and updating it. I mean, hats off to you guys and, you know, the ASM IT folks and all the members on the committee. I mean, that's a phenomenal achievement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's been a minute since I was on the committee uh, this last year and, and I was just looking at it this last week and uh, they've done a solid job updating things and keeping nice. the literature current, yeah. FDA approval, uh, you know, everything like that. It's, it's looking great. Well, and with this montage article, there's there's a big push to try to get everything on the montage article on there. So um, this, this would be a great time to check it out once you see that. So, you know, you kind of had, had delineated clinical versus consumer devices. But I mean, can we use some of these consumer devices clinically? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, strictly speaking, in a clinical sense, sense, you know, just because some of those consumer devices are considered general wellness devices, can't necessarily use them for like a clinical diagnosis. Um, but I, I, that being said, I, I mean, I think there's certainly utility in its use, and and particularly in that these devices can help engage us with our patients. Um, so you know, I, I think it's important to note that you know, if if a patient is coming in and they're presenting a consumer device or they're bringing us data and kind of asking our opinion on it, they're showing that commitment to, commitment to focus on sleep wellness. And, and you know, if, if our patients are taking ownership of their sleep difficulties, they're showing us that willingness to address them and, and it can be helpful. So, so I think you know, uh, it, it helps us start that conversation and, and then you can kind of, you know, if, if, if they're looking, you know, hey, what is this info 
giving me. You can even discuss, okay, what is the biometric that this device is looking at? How does it compare to gold standard like sleep testing? Um, and then uh, and then also kind of explain that, well, hey, you know, maybe this isn't validated or, or cleared, but, you know, now we have gold standard sleep technology um, that, you know, in the toolbox that we can thoroughly evaluate you with. Do you know where I'm kind of going with it, though, is I was kind of thinking about, um, you know, because the ActiWatch has been discontinued and I, you know, what is going to fill that vacuum? You know, should we be using wearables more and, and specifically maybe for when we're trying to figure out a circadian rhythm sleep wake disorder or maybe prior to MSLT? You know, there's that article that was published, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago that showed that the ability of several wearables to detect sleep and wake was actually better than actigraphy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think wearables will certainly, um, I think they definitely be reasonable for this scenario. Um, especially, you know, when I think of like taking the place of like a, a filled out sleep log that that people are bringing in before an MSLT that, you know, hopefully was filled out along the way, but, but you never know <laughs> if it was, you know, kind in of their doing car. their homework at the last second. <laughs> uh, in their car I, parked it, outside before their test. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, th I think it could f certainly fill that gap or, and, and you know, um, to demonstrate that adequate sleep time prior to an MSLT. But, uh, you know, ideally it would be a wearable or a device that's kind of been validated against gold standard technology like PSG. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about sleep technology and novel HSAT devices. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. With Wesper, sleep management is so easy. You could do it well. In your sleep, Wesper delivers a powerful sleep management platform built to address sleep conditions from testing through ongoing care. From home sleep apnea testing and sleep disorder testing to remote patient monitoring, patient titration, outcome management, and much more. It's sleep management made easy. Learn more at Wesper.co. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Riles and Holfinger about technology in the sleep field. So let's talk about some specific signals with these novel HSAT devices. So Scott, is PPG the same as PAT signal? Uh, so short answer, no, um, but there is some overlap. Um, so basically PPG, which is photoplethysmography, so that's a non-invasive optical technique and and as tissue is interrogated with light with specific wavelengths based off of the absorbance absorbance and the tissue fluctuations um, uh, light the resulting signal is basically ampl amplified filtered and processed and then we get this characteristic ppg waveform that we get out of that and, and out of that waveform there are both direct current and alternating current components that can be looked at and then physiological parameters can be derived so uh, hemoglobin saturation, pulse rate, pulse rate variability, um, uh, also respiratory rate, respiratory events, parasympathetic and sympathetic activity can can sort of be derived from, from looking at that. And, and PPG has kind of been used ever since, uh, in wearables at least for sleep, since about 2013. Uh, and we really, uh, because PPG is such a often used part of this technology and with sleep tracking, uh, that was one of the pushes for um, the, the tech committee to, to 
work on this JCM R S JCSM article we had a couple months ago about, about PPG and really everything you would want to know about it. Um, and, and then when you compare that to PAT or peripheral arterial tonometry, um, what that's mainly looking at is, is that that's basically done with, with a probe that's worn on, on the finger. And the signal from that is essentially a measure of the pulsatile volume changes in the peripheral arterial bed in the digit. So, so basically with sympathetic tone increases, um, uh, you can see uh, varying blood volume in, in the finger. And, and when uh, kind of coupled with actigraphy, that is where technology like the watchpad is able to, uh, you know, diagnose sleep apnea based off of estimated sleep time and, and, and looking at respiratory events. So they're not the same, but similar. I, Correct. yeah, there, I, I think that the way that I think about it is that if you look at the watch pad itself, it's got a red light sensor an IR sensor inside of there. And if you compare that with like the night owl, for instance, that, that also is using a red light sensor infrared and they both have actigraphy. Um, when you're when you're looking at the watch pad, though, like you know, if you've ever felt that thing on your finger, it's it's clamping down. It's tight, yeah. Yeah, and it's what it's trying to do is it's trying to get the volume, like it's trying to figure out what the blood volume is. And if you were to go back to the basics of, well, how would you assess the volume in the finger and the pulsatile volume of the blood? If you can get the pressure to be roughly that of the diastolic pressure, then it turns out that you can make everything a lot more even or you can even out the signal in a way that you can then pick up this um the peripheral arterial tonometry so um if you were to go back to the original way of looking at it it's actually using the pressure and volume and and using um, the direct pressure of the area around the tip of the finger to get it but you can use the light sensors to try to approximate that and that's what the watch pad is doing is it's still using ppg but because of the because of the way that the pressure is it gets a clearer signal and then when it goes to the night owl the night owl is just using um an algorithm to try to approximate that oh so that's that's more of the difference it's algorithmic as as best as i understand it <laughs> is, yeah. is, that's pretty much what's going on and it does get complicated, right? Like when you get out into the weeds and you really try to understand it. It's one of those things that like in the moment, I totally get it. <laughs> that mm -hmm. if I back away from it for too long, I have to remind myself about it. So what about um, like these newer metrics? You know, you had touched on mandibular movement. So tell me about that. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so um, with mandibular movement... Uh, so, like I said, the, the the only device I'm aware of that does mandibular movement is out of a device called Sunrise. And basically with that device, they've got a sensor placed uh, kind of below the mouth in between the bottom lip of the chin. Um, and, and what it does is looks uh, it uses some AI and machine learning algorithms to calculate a respiratory event index um, just based off of mandibular movement. Uh, so now, at least as, as far as the claims, uh, it, it claims to have the capability to detect, detect respiratory events um, and, and many of the sleep parameters that we're kind of used to seeing, like sleep stages and total sleep time. Um, there are some articles that are referenced for this device, uh, you know, being compared to PSG. Um, and um, kind of the best way to access those, we've actually got those labeled on the hashtag sleep technology website to, to look a little bit closer. 
Because they also claim that it, it is equivalent to esophageal pressure, right? That's right. Yeah. And um, uh, I can't explain. <laughs> <Can't experience. laughs> I'll say that with the with the esophageal effort, they they try to derive the respiratory effort, and then I believe in that paper they're using it to, to predict um, hypertension or cardiovascular risk. I'd have to pull up the paper again. Um, but it's you know there's so many new metrics that we we really need to wrap our brains around, right? Because you know, we need to have faith in these in, in the signals and the algorithms, right? And faith in the data that's coming out of it. Um, because it's not just sort of, you know, stuff that we're playing around with. I mean, this is potentially diagnostic for our patients <laughs> and affects whether, you know, what advice we give our patients. And so it's a it's a really important thing. And that's a really tricky thing to think about too, because when you're looking at a lot of these signals, um, well, oftentimes you're not looking at the signals, right? If you're right. getting a derived metric right. that's just automatically generated for you, um, you really have to step back and think to yourself, well, okay, when they were making this um, AI algorithm, what type of population was it in? Is that representative of the patients that I'm seeing? You know, some of the concerns might be for with WatchPad. You know, if you're on an alpha blocker. Right. Or if you've got a nitrate, then it's not going to work just because of the way the technology is. Um, what about uh, in some sort of population where, I don't know, let's say that all the studies were done in another country. Or if mm. um, you know, you've got a population of heart failure patients, well, is, are these technologies also going to work um, equitably for them? right? And so some of those questions, if you can't see the and understand the data and know all the kind of specifics, you know, it brings into questions about how accurate some of these algorithms are going to be when they're applied to populations outside of the study population. And so for that reason, I know that there's efforts underway to try to make um, validation type mm -hmm. of databases, you know, that are um, completely separate from any of the training ones. Um, I know that, for example, the ML committee within the ASM is, is working on that type of thing. So um, it's, but it's an important point. So then we can kind of rest more assured that some of these technologies aren't just being validated by the companies themselves and without much insight into how is it going to work in other populations. So, you know, and these terms get tossed around a lot, but what is the difference between validation and performance? I think that's a good question. There's, <laughs> to me, validation is more kind of an aspirational term. You know, I, I, I think of it like for a certain population that the, indent, the intended device um, specifically was tested for whatever its purpose is, let's say it's AHI. Um, and then if you're thinking, okay, is this validated for my population? Was you know, the patient that you're sitting in front of that's seen in your clinic, are they within the population it was validated for? Um, are you looking for that exact metric? Um, but there's just so many ways that you could have problems with it. Like I mentioned, comorbidities, mm. medications, whether or not they're in a different demographic group. Um, but performance, on the other hand, is just kind of more general saying, um, you know, how, how well does this well, how, what is the performance in terms of just how well is it able to generate whatever it's trying to make, I guess. Um, and so I think it's just a more vague way of saying, you know, if things that perform better in terms of actually getting the outcome it's trying to get, um, it, it might be something more reasonable to look for if you're looking at consumer devices or something along those lines. Well, especially with how quickly they they change, right? And and software update and and all of that sort of thing. So then what about cardiopulmonary coupling? That's also a newish metric. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, it's I think that it's actually been around, you know, at least over a decade that, that it was first was brought about. But um, the idea there is, well, if it's cardiopulmonary coupling, then you're looking at both the heart and the lungs. Right. And so if you were to just step back and think about it, when you're looking at a polysomnogram and you've got that single lead ECG, you'll see the height of the QRS changing with respiration. And so the idea behind this is, OK, if we can try to derive the respiratory um, variability there and to figure out what the respiration is. And then you also use the RR interval to generate the, some of the things from heart rate var variability, um, try to use the, some of those metrics. You can do a spectral analysis of those and how they interact with each other to try to figure out some other relevant things to, you know, what we're looking for. So sleep stages, um, it, there's, you know, there's a certain look to how the spectral, you know, diagram looks for the sleep stages and different diseases like central sleep apnea. Um, so, you know, it's it, like I said, it's actually been around for a little while. It's been associated in, in a few different studies with things like CPAP outcomes or, you know, or appliance or surgery outcomes for treatment of sleep apnea. And if you try to mix it with the um, cyclic alternating pattern, then it can help try to figure out sleep stability. Um, but it's not real clear how much it really adds to the polysomnogram. Well, and it's interesting, right? Because then there are these sort of newer metrics that you can I don't know if extrapolate is the right word, but they, you know, they kind of comment on um, on your sleep with this cardiopulmonary coupling device, and so it's just it's it's interesting. Some of these are hard for me to wrap my brain around. <laughs> yeah, I think I I think we've for a long time we've known. You look at the polysomnogram, and there's just so much information, mm -hmm. and we distill it down to just you know a couple of small variables, um, and we're missing a lot of different stuff. So you know the cardiopulmonary coupling is one way of of trying to figure this out. A lot of it's targeting, well, how does the sympathetic tone change throughout the night? How, but in the end, really what we need is to tie some of these to heart outcomes. Um, rather than saying like, okay, can we just figure out how does cardiopulmonary coupling attribute to AHI? Well, mm -hmm. as, as, you know, as we've all seen, you know, the question becomes, well, how important is AHI? Right. You know, so, so it's, uh, that, that's, I think that what we really need to push for as a field is, can we get any of these tied to heart outcomes? So do you think each signal needs to be assessed on its own to get sort of a standard understanding of it? Like to get it standardized? Well, I think to some degree. Um, so I, I guess from the perspective of if we're looking at standardizing um, consumer devices, for instance, and trying to make it so then there's one way to compare things across the field, um, it, it's just very difficult because let's say you've got a pulse oximetry device and it's got its own sensor, right? Let's say it's a green light sensor and you're trying to compare that to another device with a red light sensor. You know, you can't just swap the algorithms from one to the other and expect them to work the same. So it's in the end, I think that as much as we can, if we can focus on, well, what, what's the whole purpose? Why, why are we doing all this to begin with? And try to step back and say, is what the device intended to do with the sensors that it has? Is it attending the goal of tracking sleep or figuring out the AHI or whatever it's doing? I think that that's still probably the best way of going about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you make a good point, Stephen. And when it comes to these devices, uh, you know, if you, you're comparing two consumer sleep devices and even if they have the the same 
uh, sensors and, and, and actigraphy or, or, um, or movement sensors, the difference is going to be the algorithms. And uh, what it comes down to is what were those algorithms validated against and what was the set of patients they validated against. And, and you know, you could have two incredibly similar sensors, but it, it comes down to the software. And, and same even with when it goes back to the FDA clearance we were talking about earlier, if, if an algorithm changes, um, you know, it, you know it, it just depends how much algorithm, how much that algorithm has changed, whether or not they need to sort of refile for this mm-hmm. clearance or not. Yeah, it would be incredibly hard to keep up with that, I think. Yeah, I mean, we always have patches for our software for our phone and everything like that. But but really, like the, in the eyes of at least the 510K clearance, it's right. it comes back to, okay, did this change risk to the patient? And, and you know, it, that's probably more on the company that kind of decides, hey, we changed it enough or not. Yeah, I think the 510K clearance and, and how that whole thing operates is kind of interesting just to bring up for a second. So, you know, you're looking at predicate devices and in order to get 510K clearance, you have to prove equivalence to a predicate device. You you can look at it just for the example of with Watchpad 1. You know, if you pull up the 510K, it'll say, well, we compared it against the Watchpad 300. Mm-hmm. And then if you pull that one up, it was compared against the Watchpad 200. Yep. Then and that one, it was compared against the Watchpad 100 and Biosleep. And so yeah. you're going back to 2008 and then 2001, and those aren't even online anymore. Um, and so a lot of this is, you know, equivalence to prior devices to get seek approval for things. Um, and so it makes you sometimes question, well, like, okay, at what point are we going to have to prove these things work? Well, and that's kind of it, right? We're kind of building on these predicate devices. And, and a lot of them have changed pretty pretty significantly. Yeah, I think when for, specifically for that example, if you go mm-hmm. back to some of the earlier watchpad things, they they specifically state in there that this is not intended to mm-hmm. um, track sleep stages, you know, in, mm-hmm. which is one of the kind of one of the features that it's trying to <laughs> <laughs> try, trying to do now to improve the AHI sensitivity. So, yeah. So, what do you think some of the barriers are to sort of widespread adoption of this sort of new generation of home sleep apnea tests? Well, I I think that some of the things we touched on, you know, you kind of extrapolated out. So when we when we talk about these technologies and that they seem like a black box, you know, I think that people sometimes are rightfully skeptical or sometimes just are skeptical because they don't totally understand it. And I, I think balancing that and, you know, teaching people really learning about the technology itself. So then we know what to trust and when to apply it, what populations it's right for. Um, I think that that's one of the big barriers to a lot of this AI adoption. And and it's somewhat difficult to to get around that in some cases. The the best option is trying to make it so then if there's a way to manually review the data, that you keep that available. Um, when it comes to the consumer devices, I think that a lot of the barriers just have to do with you know, what are the market forces and, you know, what is the incentive for a lot of these companies to try to do things where they're either reporting performance or validation? Um, and oftentimes, I mean, there, there's a lot of things pushing back against them. So even though we ideally we want to see them all get FDA clearance for all their devices, you know, frankly, it might set them back, you know, at least months to years, you know, if they're going to go down that pathway. And from their perspective, they need to stay ahead of the curve. And so, um, what we might have to do is try to accept or, or find out at what point 
some of these other performance metrics are acceptable to us. You know, as you already mentioned, if in some ways these consumer devices are better than actigraphy, which we've accepted as the standard of care, you know, for for tracking sleep before the MSLT, maybe we need to adopt some of these things. And 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 frankly, in my opinion, I think that the technology is going to just keep on advancing and, and possibly go even faster forward to where as consumers come in to see us, they'll have devices that arguably are fairly accurate at tracking sleep and they're going to expect us to know what to do with them. So I think we need to try to get ahead of the curve so then we understand um, all these devices and what's coming so then we can make appropriate recommendations when people come to us. Well, and I think part of what you're, what you're, what I'm sort of hearing in the background is maybe we have to have more collaboration with industry and with the, you know, the the people within industry who are developing these devices, so that they can find metrics that we find clinically helpful, not just that their device happens to have this cool new feature. <laughs> it's whether we think it's clinically appropriate and helpful for us. So maybe a little bit more collaboration. Yeah, I think that'd be fantastic. Yeah, I think co- collaboration, and then also just um, you know, um, if if we could know the the types of, of of populations that that their algorithms and whatnot have studied, that that would give us a good idea of, okay, can I can I apply this to my patient population, or or or, or as we mentioned earlier, you know, if, if there are if there were data sets that the different devices could be trained against that have you know. Um, uh, you know, not only a diverse population, but different sleep disorders that, you know, within it, that that would kind of help us know, is this good for this population or not? You know what, I think that's a really important point. And maybe that's not as protected, you know, with all of this, you know, it's such a competitive industry, right? And everybody's worried about their own secret sauce, but maybe at least sharing the population <laughs> that they've done their testing on, maybe, maybe that's a good first step. Yeah, and I think any way you slice it, you know, going forward with these devices and understanding if they're good at, at what they purport to do or not is is you know they they've got to be validated against a gold standard technology. You know, they if they they're telling us you know sleep time or sleep stages or something, uh, we want to have them validated against some of the same metrics that we're used to seeing, and and that comes kind of comes back to validating against polysomnography. Yeah, so. I would agree. I, I think that that's where we absolutely need to start right now, just based on the available information that we have, is that we need to push for transparency. And then we also need to try to push for as much validation as we can reasonably expect um, and then use what we can to make our patients as good as possible. Yeah, I mean, this may be a way for us to, you know, kind of chip away at that 80 percent of sleep apnea that's undiagnosed and, you know, maybe make things um, more accessible for our patients. Yeah, I wonder if we're ready for it. If all these, uh, <laughs> if all these consumer technologies start actually, you know, telling everybody how low their oxygen levels are getting at night, that might be a wave that we're not ready for. <laughs> I am, and but maybe we sort of partner with our primary care docs and sort of help them with this too, right? Because they're they're not going to come see us first. Probably they're probably going to go see their primary care doc. Would be my guess, anyway. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is the point where we really need to think, how can we transform mm-hmm. the field into a way where we can see a lot of patients, it, you know, quickly, efficiently find the people where um, when we treat them, they're actually going to have real meaningful outcomes. Um, so as much as we can do to to move towards that, you know, the better. But um, so what's a little bit like diabetes used to be right. Like it used to be that every every person with diabetes saw the endocrinologist. 
And now that's not the case. And maybe it needs to be a little bit more like that. Not everybody with obstructive sleep apnea needs to see a sleep person. You know, maybe we just provide enough support and education for our primary care colleagues where they can sort of take take care of the straightforward bread and butter obstructive sleep apnea patients. And then maybe we do the ones that are a little bit more complex. Yeah, I, I think depending on how you define sleep apnea, if you use one of those like kind of very inclusive definitions, you know, mm. then I, I think the prevalence is kind of similar between diabetes and, and sleep mm-hmm. apnea, those really mild forms. Mm-hmm. Um, but the number of sleep docs is certainly much less than, than yeah. endocrinology. So <laughs> so <they'll, laughs> it, it will be required to get the uh, primary care docs involved. So final thoughts? Stephen, I'll let you go first. Uh, I I think it's an exciting time. I think that we're really on the cusp of a lot of these technologies advancing quickly, um, especially in the consumer realm. Um, but even in the clinical realm, I mean, there's a lot of these new devices uh, that are coming out. So, you know, if, if you want to learn more about them, I just one last plug for the hashtag sleep technology site that we worked on. Um, and thank you to all the other members and and for having us on the podcast here, Seema. Scott, how about you? Final thoughts? Uh, yeah, I just got to echo what Stephen already said. I, I mean, thanks to the uh, ASM Emerging Tech Committee members, uh, particularly, I mean, Ambrose Chang, Marianne Deek, Sharon Roden, uh, I, and the rest of the committee members, they, they put a lot of hard work into keeping up those profiles and making sure they're up to date with recent literature um, and, and reasonable things to know about each technology, I think. And, and, and you know, I, just going forward, I, you know, I, I'd encourage anyone out there who's got time to volunteer you know, um, there's a recent call for volunteers for ASM. So, you know, apply for a committee. It's a great way to get involved, great way to meet people in the field um, and, and um, it, just to really get to participate and, um, and move forward. Well, and to put something out there that is so helpful for our colleagues. You know, I, I haven't been on that committee in years. And I, I look at that website, you know, when I have some new gadget, I'm like, oh, let me go check on the sleep technology website and see what it says. And and I have faith in that, you know, because it's not, it doesn't have commercial bias. It's all sort of clinical and robust. And I really, I really do appreciate it. So thank you so much for joining us today and to help us better understand all of this new emerging sleep technology. Thank you so much for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.